0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Plant Powered People podcast. I'm Michelle Kane, founder of World of Vegan.
1: And I'm Tony Okamoto, founder of Plant Based on a Budget and Food Sharing Vegan.
0: And on this show, we talk with plant powered people from all around the world about various aspects of plant based living to empower you to learn, explore and evolve in a kind, sustainable and healthy direction, all while eating the most delicious food and having a ton of fun. Today, we are
1: excited to chat with registered dietitians, Dahlia Marin and James Marin, who are the co-founders of the integrative dietetics practice Married to Health and the first 100% plant-based SIBO and IBS nutrition program. As gut health dietitians, Dahlia and James's goal is to spread knowledge about the importance of incorporating plant foods to support a healthy gut microbiome and help those with gut issues get back to a thriving gut microbiome.
0: We've done a few episodes already that are totally focused on gut health. If you haven't heard those yet, go back and listen to the episodes with Dr. Will Switz, a gastroenterologist. They were fantastic. That's why you brought them on twice. But we're really excited today to dive much deeper into a specific gut health topic that way too many people are struggling with, IBS.
1: Before we jump in, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Autumn Glory Apples and Seed.
0: We couldn't be more excited to have a fruit as a podcast sponsor and one of our favorite fruits at that. Autumn Glory Apples are a super sweet, super juicy, and crisp apple variety that has naturally occurring hints of cinnamon and subtle notes of caramel. Some describe it as tasting like apple cider, and I have to agree. I'm a little bit of an apple snob, and these apples shot up to the top of my favorites list when I tried them. They are so, so good.
1: You can find Autumn Glory apples at many supermarkets across the country, so keep an eye out at your local grocery store. Autumn Glory is grown exclusively by Super Fresh growers who are sixth generation farmers in the Pacific Northwest. They grow apples, pears, cherries, blueberries, kiwi berries, and these Autumn Glory apples.
0: We both keep apples out on our countertops all the time year round for healthy snacking. And these Autumn Glory apples let you experience autumn all year round. Check them
1: out at your local grocery store or at autumngloryapple.com.
0: We often talk about habit stacking, which is this idea that you can more easily build new habits by linking the new desired behavior with an existing old habit. So They essentially become connected in your brain and eventually they become routine and an automatic behavior that we do without thinking. For example, if you want to eat more veggies, you can decide that before you grab a snack, you'll always go grab some baby carrots to munch on first. And if you want to remember to take your vitamins or probiotics, keep a glass of water by your bed and take them every morning before you get out of bed. If taking probiotics is one of your
1: goals, our sponsor Seed is becoming a huge leader in the field of gut health. They make a plant-based daily symbiotic that is the most consciously crafted, scientifically backed probiotics that we know of. And the plant-based capsules are made to survive through the digestion. So around 100% of the probiotic starting dose makes it to your colon. And we love that they have sustainable packaging. The symbiotics come in a refillable glass jar to minimize single-use plastics.
0: If you're looking for a fantastic source of probiotics, definitely check out Seed and start a new healthy habit today. You can visit seed.com plantpowered and use the code plantpowered to redeem 30% off your first month of Seed's DS01 state. DSO one Daily Symbiotic. That's seed.com slash plant-powered and use code plant-powered.
1: Hi, Dahlia and James. Welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast.
2: Hi. So great to be here. Hi.
1: Thanks for having us. We're excited for this combo. We are really excited. We've heard from a lot of people in our audience, as well as in my personal life who struggle with IBS. And I don't even really fully understand what that is and to what extent it impacts people. So I'm really excited to chat with you today and go deep diving into how people can feel better. So Before we get started, I have read all up on you. I feel like not only have I met you in person and enjoy your content online, but I have really gone through your website, your videos, and all of the stuff that you have out in the world and really impressed by all of that you do. First, can you talk about your approach to nutrition? Because in integrative health care is something that has been newer to me. I didn't know what it meant and it's something that you strongly identify with. So can you share what that means?
2: Yeah, I mean, we always just kind of give just a simple analogy of like we are a body, right? And so when you have a headache, that is connected to your gut health. When you have hives or post nasal drip or allergies or, you know, a skin rash that's connected to your gut health. So we've always seen it that way. And it's funny in our undergrad, I mean, just being taught kind of in silos where inflammatory bowel disease is separate from irritable bowel disease and that's separate from diabetes. And you need a separate protocol for then Alzheimer's disease or dementia. And it's like, well, no, it's it's all one body. So the definition of an integrative approach is really taking separate things and realizing they're truly connected and that—that that is the simple definition of an integrative approach. And so we even go beyond that to say the environment and where you live and where you work and your stress and your emotions and it goes even beyond. So Because we
3: do know that every aspect of a person's life is going to affect their nutrition and their gut. So when I'm speaking to a patient, I'm not just asking, okay, tell me what you eat, and I'll tell you Mm -hmm. that's exactly why your gut feels the way it is. I know that that's not true. There's so much data to back that up. We do know that. Early adverse life events and early adverse trauma that one goes through will significantly impact their gut even into adulthood. So I want to know about that. We do know that even one's mother's habits, whether they... They, The mother themselves had IBS during pregnancy, or if the baby was born vaginally or via C-section or was breastfed versus formula fed, that can impact the gut microbiome. I want to know about someone's current life stressors. I want to know, are you moving your body in a way that is exciting and pleasant for you because that can impact your gut and your nutrition. So this integrative approach really does integrate this mind-body connection, which we know is so strong and so important. It integrates nutrition. It integrates mental health support. It integrates one's budget and resources so that way we can really get that person feeling the best that they possibly can. It's
1: surprising to me that healthcare isn't in general thought of in that way. It makes so much sense to me that we would look at our bodies holistically and at all of the different factors in our lives to determine how we can be overall well. So thank you for sharing that. I know that there are so many different ways, different paths you can go down as a registered dietitian. How did you get Super hyper focused on IBS and SIBO and gut health in general.
2: You know, I always I love this question because it is. It's nice to like reflect and look back and we go, yeah, how did we get here? <laughs> and and honestly, like I think you start as all dietitians start as like, okay, let's let's see. I, I really want to just help people. I, I don't think you become a dietitian because you don't want to help people. You just want to help people. And and it was just hours and hours of just coming through PubMed and the research. And I think Dahlia at first was really interested in in more like kidney disease, renal disease. I was interested in diabetes and then also the environment, environmental nutrition. But as we read and as we kind of just followed these breadcrumbs, it led us to the gut microbiome. It led us to this whole like underground world you can think of where most people don't realize we're even super organisms, that humans have that classification. And you go, what's a super organism? Well, it's an organism that is made up of multiple organisms, right? And we don't even think of ourselves as that. And so when we're looking at this research, we're going, oh my gosh, like this is amazing to where now we are confident to say truly the your individual gut microbiome is the most important ecosystem on the planet. And we say that because we have the unique ability as humans to shape other ecosystems on this planet based on just the foods we like to eat, right? If we want to take an area and chop down all the trees and grow bananas, we can. If we want to take in a swamp and fill it with dirt and start growing corn, we can do that. So when... When we start to dictate the world and reshape it based on what we're eating, that's very powerful. And so all that to say, we then started finding diseases in people like IBS, SIBO, and we can explain all all of what that is, and just going, wow, these these are affecting this important ecosystem, and it's important that we address this and, and truly help people kind of take this on and understand.
3: And, you know, outside of professionally, because like James said, we kind of got started and we're each trying to find our respective niches. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I worked in all kinds of settings. I worked in an inpatient hospital. I worked in an outpatient uh, federally qualified health center. I worked with pediatrics and worked with children. I worked in a functional medicine clinic. I feel like I've tried (laughs) so many different facets, but I know for me, I always wanted to find, okay, how am I going to continue to optimize my health as well? Uh, mm-hmm. We were plant-based. We have been plant-based for 12 years. And so I felt really good about eating plant-based and just continued to feel that there's something missing here. I need a little bit more support from my team. I little I need a little bit more education for myself as being somebody living with an autoimmune condition. I do have Hashimoto's hypothyroid. So I kept trying to understand Okay, where where do I go back? Okay, it was maybe childhood where this developed or, you know, functional. I started I got certified in functional nutrition and started learning about that and it all kept pointing me back to the gut myself, my own health, for my patients. So that's where James said, we just dove into the research and really knew, okay, this is where it's at. This is where we need to learn. This is what we need to know more about. This is what people need help with.
2: And what's beautiful is as we continue to go to different conferences and keep learning, a lot of people, I don't want to say, I, I should say a lot of researchers and scientists in this field get this. They're like, People need to eat more plants, but then you see them at the same conference eating roast beef and mashed potatoes and like uh, ribs and chicken, you know, in the in the lunch, you know, or snack times in the events, and and there's a big disconnect, right? Where it's like a lot of the researchers and scientists go, yes, people need to eat more plants, but there's this huge gap of like how do we get them to do that? And we in our practice are trying to fill that gap because. I'm sure you all know that person or many listening are that person who are like, I'm trying to eat more plants, but I feel bloated or I get massive migraines or I break out in hives. That is all connected to your gut health. And that's what we're addressing.
0: It's really exciting that there's like this global spotlight in the health space on the gut right now. So much research. So many people are shifting their attention there because it's just understood now how that how important that is to our bodies, our systems, to everything about our health. It's really, really exciting to see. So let's dive right into specifically IBS. We've all heard IBS, but I imagine many people listening don't know what exactly that means. What is it? Uh, what does it stand for? And what are some of the symptoms associated with
3: IBS? Yeah, so that's a great question because we do know it's becoming more of a prevalent term. Unfortunately, more people are being diagnosed with it. Gut health is becoming a little bit more destigmatized. So more people are talking about irritable bowel syndrome and that's what IBS is. And really it is a disorder of the gut brain interaction, which is kind of a new definition that they've given it. Before they used to think that IBS was more of a functional disease. Just your gut was irritable. We don't know why its function is... that it's irritable. Now we're understanding that it is that disorder of the gut brain interaction because they are connected and they're intertwined via a little elevator that we have in our body called our vagus nerve. And that is a, a nerve that run, it's one of our longest cranial nerves. It runs from gut to brain, brain to gut. And we actually send 80% of signals from our gut to our brain, 20% from our brain to our gut. And when those signals are disrupted because our gut is disrupted, one can then have IBS. And we really identify IBS as any different change in abdominal discomfort. So if three or more times within a few months, somebody has abdominal discomfort and change in bowel habits, whether that's constipation, diarrhea, a mix, some people have alternating constipation, diarrhea, then they can be diagnosed with IBS. So really it doesn't take much, right? Who don't we know who has a few stomach aches and constipation or diarrhea within a few months? Its prevalence is about one in 20 people, although some say that it's up to 15% of the American population. We do know that it's more prevalent in more developed nations, probably because we have more processed food, hyper refined, hyper processed food, and probably more access to medical care. So people are seeking care out, especially females. We do know that a predominant uh, population who's diagnosed with IBS is female. Over 60% of those who do identify as having IBS or those who have been struggling with IBS, 60 to 65% of them are female, mostly 20 to 40 years old.
0: It's interesting how hard it is for my brain to even grasp the brain-gut connection. I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, is this why we feel like queasy or nauseous when we're, you know, getting up on stage to speak? Like there's all these things that we feel in our gut happening, but I don't understand why, <laughs> like why before Tony and I go to speak like speak on TV, do we instantly have to poop? Like we talked about this <laughs> last time, we're like, shoot, we're gonna start two minutes suddenly out of nowhere, we have to poop. So like, I'm so fascinated by this, by this brain connection to the gut, wild.
2: And you know, if I can add to that, it, it's it's because the gut, If if the gut was a storyteller, its story would be that of connection. The gut is there to connect us because really, and, and when I say the gut, I'm talking from mouth to anus. We have this tube from our mouth to our anus that we call the gut. And I know a lot of people think of the gut as like our stomach, but I'm saying mouth to anus, we have this tube and its goal is to connect us when you think about eating, you are taking the outside world and literally putting it into your body and you are becoming that outside world. We now, you know, a lot of people don't realize everything you eat has DNA, right? So this is, we like to educate a lot on this, where we go, do you know that that zucchini or that apple or that kiwi has DNA? And it is this mix of the virome and the microbiome and that food where we are exchanging DNA fragments, nutrients, other microbes, and we are literally becoming what we eat. We are literally connecting to our environment. So if our environment is off, like we are seeing, whether it's polluted or there's toxicity or we're not eating the correct foods, We are going to be off. And that is our gut.
3: I think of them as our little gut babies. Uh, You know, we have an eight year old (laughs) daughter. And I always think, you know, Michelle, when you're saying, okay, why do I always have to poop when I'm stressed? (laughs) Or, you know, I'm about to go on TV. I think of my daughter, right? She doesn't need to be told that I'm stressed for her to sense my stress, Mm -hmm. right? She can see it on my Mm -hmm. face. She can feel it in my vibes. She can just sense Mm -hmm. it in the way that I'm changing. And our gut microbes, our little gut bugs who live within us they are the same. They can just sense that, oh, you know, mom or dad, whoever they're living in, you know, (laughs) that that person's anxious. That person maybe can't deal with all of what we have going on right now, let's just empty out because they have enough going on, right? Mentally, emotionally, their plate is full. So let's just kind of evacuate. So that way we can help them out and we can try to reduce some of that burden that they have. So our little gut bugs, our little gut babies, I think are so, so, so highly sensitive. We do know that. We do know that uh, 99% of our genes are microbial. So they're a large composition of our bodies and they communicate with us very, very, very directly. And again, if we're brain is stressed, and we send that down to them, they're going to send those stress signals right back up to the brain.
1: Is IBS different than IBD? I've heard of IBD, but I, I really don't know what that means.
3: Yeah. So IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. Again, it's just that collection of symptoms. It's that disorder of the gut brain connection. Whereas inflammatory bowel disease is an autoimmune type of disease. So that would include ulcerative colitis or Crohn's. So that would be under that umbrella of IBD. There is also a non-autoimmune type of IBD called just microscopic colitis. And this doesn't involve the immune system kind of attacking the lining of the small intestine or the large intestine, the colon. This just includes inflammation that has damaged the colon. And there's actually an interesting connection between the two that James really likes to talk about.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is, and this, this, I love this because it really speaks to the the connection that we're talking about, right? This, this idea of being integrated, where we're seeing, you know, pretty much all IBD, so that inflammatory bowel disease, when we talk about Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis, those patients typically will have IBS. So there's, I know there's a lot, of the, the alphabet soup is being thrown around here, but, but so if you have IBD, you likely have IBS. And, w- and what I would say is really IBS puts you at risk and the research backs us up for IBD. So if you think, man, it sucks I have constipation and diarrhea, this is your wake up call to really get that under control. And we, we've we seen this in our patients and friends and family who have like, yeah, you know, I've been constipated, whatever, that's just how I am. I poo once a week and that's normal for me. It's been like that for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Let this be your wake-up call to take action on that because what we're finding is when you have IBS-like symptoms, you're at 800 times risk of that inflammatory bowel disease. That's when your immune system goes, you know what, we're gonna attack you now and, and then put you at risk for colon cancer, colectomy where you have to get your colon removed and a bunch of things no one wants to happen to them when you're diagnosed with IBS, you're at 1800% risk of IBD, that inflammatory bowel disease once again. So that is no joke. And this is based off our US military data, which is really solid data of looking at military personnel who came in to the medic and had either IBS-like symptoms or full-on IBS, and then what happened to them down the road, which, many of them developed inflammatory bowel disease where now they are, they're basically their immune system is now attacking their colon and And, doing damage.
3: And I see it as a progression between your body kind of gently whispering or talking to you like, hey, something's off and that's IBS. Whereas with IBD, your body's basically screaming at you and is like, please stop. I need help. Something's awry please give me that love and attention that i have been asking for for probably quite some time before we got to this place where it turned into full blown autoimmune condition. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned a few things earlier about
1: possible ways you can get discomfort in the stomach or in the gut. But how do you get IBS? What are things that trigger it?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say, I mean, we're seeing this in first world countries where it is, I mean, the short answer is a disconnection from what has made us kind of human, right? For so long. I mean, if you think about now, we spend a lot of time in first world countries where we're seeing a majority of this IBS, we're spending a lot of time indoors versus outdoors. We're not in the sunlight getting enough vitamin D. We are then... I mean, partly because of this, we're now exposed to more antibiotics. I, I know I'm a 90s kid. I mean, I literally was on amoxicillin pretty much my entire childhood, which is that bubble gum flavored antibiotic. And that was normal, but was it right or healthy? And I think we can, the consensus can say no, that was not. So long-term recurrent antibiotic use pretty much also, like psychiatric issues, even we see uh, childhood trauma being a risk factor. So that emotional abuse, childhood trauma, and even accidents, car accidents. So whether you've been in an injury and that's done damage to the pelvic floor and issues like that, that can cause issues with constipation, and and so many things we see as kind of that the first world problems, but really are just a the summary of which is a disconnection from what we've been doing as humans for thousands of years. And Dahlia can add more to that, but... There was
3: a really good 2021 meta-analysis and they took a look at over 53,000 cases of IBS. And yeah, like James said, number one risk factor for IBS is excessive antibiotic use in childhood. There's so, so, so much data speaking to how important the first thousand days of life are. And that includes during pregnancy. So that's basically... In utero, up until that child turns two years old. And we have seen a very strong correlation between those thousand days of life, all the way up to five years old, and strong antibiotic use at that time. We do know, you know, especially in a developed nation like the United States, parents aren't going to slow down their lives oftentimes if their kid is sick over and over in daycare. They need to get back to work that kid needs to go back to daycare. So they're often put on recurrent antibiotics in those first five years before the immune system is its strongest. We do also see processed foods, hyper-refined, ultra-processed food being a risk factor for IBS as well. Not only just the sheer fact that that food tends to generate a little bit more inflammation in the body, but it's usually replacing a whole fiber-rich food. So not only are we feeding the inflammatory gut bugs who are going to generate more inflammation, light their little fires all throughout the gut. We're also not feeding the anti-inflammatory gut bugs who are coming in and acting as firefighters. And then add that, like James was saying, external inflammation, whether that's mental, emotional inflammation from trauma, whether that's physical inflammation from injuries or sedentary lifestyle, all of those are probably the very strongest risk factors for IBS. Combine that with hormones and that leads to, again, I think the rates of diagnosis that we're seeing.
2: Put all those ingredients in the oven at 350 and then you got IBS for Mm -hmm. dinner. You know, it's like, it's like all those things. So it's, it's, it's alarming, but the good news is all of that can be reversed. Like our, our tagline and our company and our practice is heal with each meal. And literally the science shows that with each meal, you can shape your gut microbiome with each meal, you're either going down the path of, more risk for IBS, or the opposite direction, and just facilitating this thriving ecosystem within you. So that can happen with each meal and and snack.
0: Can you describe for people who are newer to IBS? Can you describe how it impacts people's daily lives and how perhaps it it progresses? Just so we can get a better understanding. It it's considered a a silent disease, right? It's something that people are coping with. They're smiling, they're happy, they're out and about with friends. You probably don't even know they have IBS and they're just dealing with this oftentimes privately. So we'd love to just get that out in the open. Like what does that struggle look like when you're living with it?
3: Yeah. So this can include several days a month where somebody is experiencing abdominal pain, We do know that those with IBS have higher rates of what's called visceral hypersensitivity, where those nerves in their gut, which are so numerous, your gut is the second most aggregate bundle of nerves in the body outside of the brainstem. So those nerves become very sensitive. They have just higher sensation of pain. They can experience abdominal distension, which is the appearance of bloat or the sensation of bloat. They can experience excessive gas where they're passing gas more than 15 to 20 times in a single day. They can experience malodorous gas. And depending on what they're dealing with, their gas might smell like rotten eggs or sulfur. It could smell like methane, which tends to kind of have that outhouse type of smell. They could also experience very frequent bowel movements if they do have IBSD, IBS with diarrhea. So they might be having seven, 10, up to 20 bowel movements a day. They might be highly constipated where maybe they haven't had a bowel movement in 10 days or in 14 days. And that's so uncomfortable to be walking around with that fecal matter in one's digestive tract, in one's colon. Because of these different things, they might also be experiencing things like acid reflux or dyspepsia where they are then having acid come back up their esophagus after they've eaten. So there's so many symptoms somebody with IBS could be very much suffering with in silence and that takes their life from one of enjoying these pleasant connective experiences like meal times to being something that they dread, right? Most of us look forward to meal times and we're like, "Oh, I can't wait to be in community and eat with my best friends and share this delicious meal." Whereas somebody with IBS looks at that as a lens of, oh, my gosh, I really hope that that meal doesn't hurt my stomach, that I don't accidentally pass gas, that if I do, it doesn't smell, that I'm not running to the bathroom a million times. So it really will change their perspective on almost every situation that someone who does not have IBS would look at in a completely different light. How many people don't even know that they have IBS?
0: Do you know that?
3: Is that data out there? You know, we we do know that it's a highly underdiagnosed disease. I don't know if we necessarily, or maybe I don't necessarily have that exact number, but we do know also that males are much less likely to seek out medical attention for IBS. I think that the reason females are at a higher rate of diagnosis with IBS is for a few reasons. Our estrogen makes our nerves more sensitive to the changes in bloat and discomfort. But there were studies that showed that females were about 60% more likely to actually seek out care. So they were more likely to visit a gastroenterologist or speak to their primary care doctor about these changes that they were experiencing versus a male who maybe wasn't necessarily going to, to divulge or disclose that with their primary care provider. But we do know that the prevalence is likely much, much, much higher than what we the stats we are seeing out there. So it's very underdiagnosed, in my opinion.
2: And and honestly, and that's why we say the gut microbiome is the most important ecosystem. And we do agree with even ancient wisdom that says all diseases begin in the gut. So we think really GI issues are way more prevalent because they are truly the underlying issue of actually so many chronic diseases that we're seeing. It really all ties in and goes back to the gut microbiome because I mean not to get too off topic here but we have multiple microbiomes in our body just like I said we're a super organism we have a lung microbiome we have an oral microbiome we have a skin microbiome and they're all in contact and connection with one another so if if the primary microbiome is in what we call dysbiosis meaning it's just imbalanced being the gut microbiome that is going to have a ripple effect throughout all the microbiomes in the entire body.
3: Ooh, but I did find some cool stats while James was telling us that. It's a, a little older, but a 2013 survey of over 2,000 adults in the U.S. found that 76% of them reported that they had experienced GI discomfort, so some type of gut pain. Of those 70, 70 plus percent, 76%, 74% of those said they had lived with these symptoms for six or more months. And 56% of those had not sought out any care. So if you don't seek out care, you can't get diagnosed. So like I said, I really, really do think that it's affecting much more than the 1 billion people worldwide who are diagnosed with IBS.
0: Yeah, it really puts a new meaning to listen to your gut. Like pay attention, listen to your gut. We're programmed to like ignore all the little discomforts. We get a bump, we get a scrape. Oh, it'll heal, it'll be fine, it'll get better soon. And it's a really good reminder that our gut is telling us something. So I'm curious, you you named a bunch of the different types of things people might be feeling or, experience or th- experiencing or those signs that they might have IBS. So what do you recommend that people do if they feel like something's off in their gut or they're feeling bloated a lot or any of those things you mentioned, what would you recommend they do with those first signs?
3: I would say one, write down your gut story. So that way when you go seek out care, you can Possibly pinpoint. Okay, I think this is when it started. That's the first thing I like to ask my patients. Tell me your gut health story. And a lot of them are taken aback by that question. They're like, "Oh, no one's ever asked me this. I, I really don't know." I really encourage people to do that. Start from day zero, right? Like we said, in utero. Ask your ask your mom. Was I did you have IBS when you were pregnant with me? How was I born? How was I fed? Did I have colic as a baby? They're now really assessing that colic is more of a gut inflammatory condition over more of a mental emotional condition. How was your diet as a child? What was your antibiotic use like as a child? What was your stress level? Like how active were you? What was your relationship with food from the beginning? Were you a comfort or emotional eater? What did that look like in your teens, your 20s, your 30s? And go from there. How did hormones play into it? So I think that that's one of the first places people should start. Write down your gut health story and really take into account, okay, yes, I did take a lot of antibiotics. So maybe some of my good gut buggies have been removed and I haven't replenished them. Maybe I'm not eating probiotic foods. That's a low-hanging place to start. There were some amazing studies and two really, really, Cornerstone studies that came out in the last couple of years speaking to the importance of fermented and probiotic rich foods. They recommended four to six servings of them per day, such as dairy free yogurts or kimchi or kombucha that's unsweetened or sauerkraut or miso soup, tempeh that's not roasted to death. Any of those fermented foods have conferred benefits on the gut. So add those. Are you eating your 30 plants per week? Because there's that really amazing study that came out of the University of San Diego that showed those who were eating 30 plus plants per week had a more diverse and better balanced gut microbiome. So start there. Can I add more plants? Can I add more probiotic foods? Can I write down my health story? So when I do go seek out care, I can tell them I've already tried those two low hanging fruits. Here's my story what's going on with me.
2: And and so the simple equation really quickly is like, you're a gardener at the end of the day, right? You are creating a garden and we call that our gut. And so do you have compost? Are you mulching, right? How's your soil? Because every day we're coming into contact with microbes, many of which are probiotics. So the way a microbe gets a probiotic, like we can think of it like a crown or like a metal or something, is that studies have shown that certain strains have a benefit on the human ecosystem, the human biome and have a, a, a beneficial outcome. And then we designate, oh, the strain's a probiotic. We're coming into contact with multiple strains throughout the day and so, it's it's really the question is is that strain going to like your garden it's just like a seed being thrown on a concrete slab or a seed being thrown in a regenerative farm where the soil's healthy and there's mulch and there's water and a beautiful ecosystem which seed is going to grow so you want to look at your gut in that way And kind of what Dahlia mentioned, yeah, those 30 plants, the probiotic foods, you know, being mindful of your antibiotics and your movement and all all these factors are basically translating to a, a fertile garden, that soil that you want things to grow in. And then when you're On top of that, doing more uh, probiotic-rich foods, fermented foods, going into nature, you're just adding those seeds to your garden that can then grow and flourish. The beautiful thing, especially with women, is then they're going to transfer this to the next generation via vaginal birth via skin to skin, via breastfeeding, right? So it's beautiful. So as you build this ecosystem, not only is it for you, but then you get to pass it on to the next generation. And that's one of the most beautiful gifts you can give to your children.
1: James, now you're really speaking my language. When you give me gardening (laughs) references, I I totally get it. It makes sense. Talk mulching to us. (laughs) Yeah, James and I bonded over gardening. I really appreciate that. It all makes sense <laughs> now. Okay, so Beautiful. once you have IBS, is it possible to recover? Like, are there specific foods that trigger it that we could watch out for? Are there foods
3: that heal us? Yeah. So, I would say one of the most studied diets, and and I call it a diet, not a lifestyle, because it is meant to be temporary, but one of the most studied medical nutrition therapeutic diets is a low FODMAP diet, which stands for low fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, basically fermentable carbohydrates. So those are different types of sugars and fibers. And One can possibly help with their gut microbiome with eating low FODMAP for no more than six weeks. Really, if you're gonna do it, you're gonna do it four to six weeks and then you really need to start reintroducing them. But it gives a temporary break to your gut. If you did have overabundance of fermenting bacteria that were living in the wrong place, then maybe take a break from feeding them. So you get a break from that constant bloat, that constipation that may be caused by constantly feeding them. So that could be one thing that people try is a low FODMAP diet and then work with somebody who's knowledgeable about it so they can reintroduce the FODMAPs and identify which one of those things is triggering them. I do though have patients who say, oh, I've tried low FODMAP. I've tried gluten-free. I've tried dairy-free. I've tried you know the top eight allergen elimination diet and that didn't necessarily work for me. Well, then that gets more specific to understanding your microbiome type, working with a knowledgeable practitioner who can maybe test you. Do you have overgrowth, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, was, which is a subtype of IBS, have some of those fermenting gut bugs migrated up from your colon where they're supposed to live into your small intestine. And now every time you eat, you're feeding them too. And they're making maybe sulfury gas. And maybe you need to pull back from sulfur for a temporary period of time. Maybe you also need, maybe you, you have leaky gut caused by SIBO or other things, which is Technically called intestinal permeability. And now you can't break down histamines. We do know 60 plus percent of the enzyme that breaks down histamine called DAO, diamine oxidase, it's made in your small intestine. And if your small intestine's leaky, maybe you have a compromised ability to break down histamines, including histamines you're eating. So sometimes I'll use low histamine diet as a therapeutic way of eating for my patients. I can use a combination of those different things, low FODMAP, low histamine, but I would say. Low FODMAP is the most well-studied, so that's that can be a good place for people to start with medical nutrition therapy. Even before that, though, I have seen people experience a world of difference when really they just decrease dairy or they trial just a dairy-free, gluten-free diet for a couple weeks or months predominantly, I think, because so much processed food has processed gluten. I don't think a gluten-free diet is this cure-all, but what I do tend to find is my patients are like, oh yeah, I started eating more brown rice and now I'm eating oats instead of eating a processed piece of white bread for breakfast. And I'm eating just more fiber when they are eating gluten-free as well. Not everybody, but oftentimes. So they could start as low as that, gluten-free, or they could try maybe one of those other healing therapeutic types of diets like low FODMAP, low histamine, low sulfur, or any combo.
2: I was going to add to that really quickly because we were, we were traveling through some airports recently and we literally called it the bread, meat, cheese combo, right? Like we were literally, (laughs) the only thing to eat was bread, meat, cheese. And so you have pizza, bread, meat, cheese. Oh, you want a sandwich, bread, meat, cheese. You want a hamburger, bread, meat, cheese. It was just different restaurants with different types of bread, meat, cheese. When that's all you're offered and then you're like, wow, my gut hurts, and then you realize, if I had to say one amazing gut food is really any slimy food. And I know that doesn't really sound that appetizing, but it's delicious when you think of chia, when you think of okra, when you think of oats, when you think of any of these plant foods that have that sliminess texture. We have, Dahlia's Egyptian, we have a yummy soup called molhaya that, that is jute leaf. And so it creates like a, a slimy soup that is delicious like and it, it is super gut healing. You've tried that before?
1: No, cactus, that's what it reminds mm-hmm. me oh, of. Oh, cactus, right. right, no bother. Yeah, so there's yep. so many of
2: these slimy plant foods that are amazing them. for your gut. And then really quickly, I wanted to, to summarize all that in an analogy, right? We use a debt analogy because I know this can be overwhelming, just like someone who's in massive amounts of debt can feel overwhelming. What we're seeing out there by influencers and by so many, even like other doctors, unfortunately, is they're telling people to run away from their debt. They're going, eat more meat, right? Eat more carnivore. You know, Don't eat fiber. Plants are bad. Lectins are bad. Grains are bad. They're saying, what they're essentially saying is, oh, you have debt? Take your envelopes, rip them up, You know those people calling you, change your number, and there you go, you're fixed. And some people go, oh wow, I feel so much better. But then when they go and buy a car or try to buy a house, they realize, oh, I just ran away from my problems, but it's still there and it's worse than ever, right? What we're saying is, yes, it'll take some hard work, but face your debt head on, come up with a plan, and maybe for a short time, you're gonna have to budget really well, and really hard, but then once you get out of that deep hole you're in, your budgeting is much less. You get to spend more money in a healthy way. You get to kind of loosen up those restrictions, and then you have a diversity of wealth and abundance. It parallels what we're talking about really well with with nutrition and health and plant foods. There is an abundance there that you just need to tap into and access for sure.
1: Can one be vegan with IBS?
2: Most definitely. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. And that, and that is our specialty. I should say that is Dahlia and our other dietitian Rachel's specialty, where they specialize in a hundred percent plant-based approach to IBS and SIBO, mm-hmm. because so much of what out there, you may find other protocols for IBS and SIBO, but it's like, eat more fish and eat more chicken and avoid whole grains and avoid all these plant foods. And it's like, well, no, they're, they're kind of missing the mark, right? Even with a low FODMAP diet, those are foods you want and you don't want to be on that diet for a long time. But unfortunately we do see patients come in who have been on that low FODMAP diet for much too long.
3: But even if somebody does need to be on a therapeutic diet like that, it's absolutely possible to do it plant-based. So we will educate patients on things like, okay, if tofu is high histamine, let's get you trying pumfu. Or maybe you can make a lentil tofu that is completely soy-free. We can absolutely replace and replace some of those protein sources that maybe are more fermentable. Maybe they're not eating black beans on a low FODMAP diet when they're in that temporary elimination. But we're having them eat more chickpeas or we're having them try lima beans. And we're having them eat more edamame or firm tofu. So there absolutely are those plant-based swaps. There is absolutely hope out there for somebody who wants to eat more plant plants and heal their IBS. There's so much more data coming out supporting eating more plants in order to heal the gut. It's really just knowing which foods are going to get you there. Can you describe what SIBO is? Yes. Absolutely. So SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It also can be small intestinal fungal overgrowth or intestinal methanogenic overgrowth. And Basically what happens is, like James said, we have this tube from mouth to anus and various parts of that tube have less bacteria than others, bacteria and other microbes and gut bugs. So we have our mouth, which has some bacteria and gut bugs in it. We have our esophagus our stomach, which really does not have much bacteria in it because it's too acidic to house that bacteria. Then we have our small intestine. Finally, we have our colon, our large intestine. We do know a majority of that 40 trillion plus bacteria that lives in our digestive tract lives in the colon, a majority of it. So in SIBO or IMO or SIFO, what we do tend to find is there's upward migration, whether that's because somebody has extreme constipation. And those gut bugs are like, this has been here for five days. I'm not getting anything new from this. I'm hungry. I need to be fed. I'm going to open this little door that separates me, the large intestine from the small intestine, and I'm going to go get myself food. So they'll do that. Or that could be because somebody has pelvic floor issues. And again, maybe they're not getting complete bowel evacuation. It could be that they have too much of the type of hydrogen producing gut bugs like E. coli or Klebsiella, and that's giving them diarrhea. And those made their way up into their small intestine. Again, maybe it's fungal overgrowth. Maybe somebody was on course after course after course of antibiotics. So then it allowed fungus and yeast to really take hold and really be a predominant species in the gut. And they also made their way up to the small intestine. So really it is when any of these gut bugs is overgrowing in the small intestine, but it also can be an overgrowth in the large intestine. And that's gonna create a lot of those symptoms. There actually have been studies that have shown that 14 to 70, seven zero percent of IBS Is actually SIBO. It's caused by small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And I see this in so many of my patients who have been living for years just thinking, well, my gut's irritable. I have IBS and there's nothing I can do about it except avoid my trigger foods, avoid social situations, and try to minimize my stress. And I'll say, hey, have you been tested for SIBO? And they go get tested and they're like, I have SIBO. And we get them treated and their quality of life improves extremely. So it is a subset of IBS, and I think so many people are who have IBS are living with SIBO and maybe don't even know it.
2: And, and most importantly, doing this all while 100% plant-based yeah. is completely possible. And it's an option for many of our patients, and that's, that's a, a lot of patients who come to see us. There's also a lot of patients who are like, hey, I'm not 100% plant-based, but I want to add more plants. And they just can't because they've never been properly treated or even properly diagnosed with SIBO, they don't even realize they have it. And that's been the barrier to them eating more plant Mm -hmm. foods this entire time.
1: I've heard you talk about this a little bit and uh, specifically the reverse elimination diet and also the importance of adding a diversity of plants. For people who are really busy, some of whom have families, what's an easy way to get into the habit of creating meals that are are quick, that your kids will like, that your meat-loving, meat-cheese bread-loving spouse will like. What are some tips and tricks that you can provide for our listeners who live in those situations but want that diversity of plants?
2: I feel like Tony, you're, you're the expert on that. Like your, (laughs) and your book too, the the plant based on a budget, quick and easy was great. I mean, we love that. I mean, it is, it's like thinking of any recipe and I mean, I mean, it's a spectrum, right? Like if it is uncle so-and-so who's the meat and cheese and potato guy, and he wants to start eating more plants, it's like, okay, uncle, uncle Joe, what are you eating? Let's just add one new plant that you like or, or mm-hmm. add. We always say just add Start there is our, is our easiest and, and most simple goal for somebody. So even whatever their meal is currently, what can we add? Even if it's just some chives on top of the baked potato or the meat, or if it's, you know, adding a type of zucchini stir fry on the side or a side salad with just some really cool like legumes in it and tomato. And I mean, there's so much you can add. So,
3: and that's always where we love to educate to start. Cause I, I have patients. I, I just spoke with him yesterday. I have a patient who is native American and he lives on a reservation and he's like, Mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of fresh produce. So he thinks I'm not going to eat fresh produce, but he's telling me, I went out to eat at Denny's and Taco Bell and, and here and there. And I'm like, well, what did you order? Well, I got this meat and cheese, whatever. And I'm like, (laughs) do they have lettuce and tomatoes there? And he's like, oh yeah. And I'm like, well, how would you feel about ordering a side salad or ordering some pickles on your food or ordering, just adding. So add some lettuce, add some tomatoes, add some cucumbers. When you go to that Mediterranean restaurant, ask them, can you slice me up some cucumbers to dip with this hummus? Do you have carrot slices? Can you add A veggie side dish to your meal, whether you're going out to eat, whether you're somebody who is cooking at home and you need something quick and easy, our quick and easy meal on days we're busy is like a can of bean soup and I'll add some frozen veggies to it. And that's a an eight-minute meal. You want to season it properly, but that tends to be a crowd pleaser as well. So I think with adults, it's just thinking of okay, how can I add? And if you don't have time to sit there and chop and wash and store. Get, get frozen food. Somebody else chopped it, washed it, stored it for you. So use that or buy pre-cut stuff. It's a great resource. We, if you have access to it, use things that somebody else has washed and peeled and cut and done that work for you with but really use those resources to think about adding. And then as far as kids go, really it's when we're modeling it, they're more likely to try it. We just got back from being on a trip with family members for a few weeks. And these family members we were with, (laughs) I would say, would call themselves picky eaters. I don't like to call anyone a picky eater, but they have kind of called themselves picky eaters. But we really did see over the couple weeks that they were with us they were then going for fruit before getting dessert or they were making sure to add the veggies to their meal Not because James and I said a single word to them about it. I never judge anyone for the way that they eat, but just because they saw us doing it. And whether that's an adult or a child, we know that kids are more likely to eat more of a diversity of plants if we eat the plants. And then giving it cute names. When I'm with my nieces and nephews or even with our daughter, I'm like, hey, do you want to put some sprinkles on our food? And they're chia seeds or flax seeds, (laughs) but they're like, oh, cool, sprinkles. And they'll try it because it has a fun name or because you made it look cute or because you're eating it yourself and they love you and they want to try what you're trying. So that's my number one tip. And I think that's where we always like to start is just say, add, we all have one veggie at least that we really
2: enjoy. And and the stats are on your side. I just want to say really quickly where there's about 700,000 known types of plants uh, and counting. And then 40,000 of which are edible that we eat. And those are even counting as well. So the stats are on your side. And then where the average American is eating three types of animal products, right? So 40,000 different types of plant foods versus three types of animals that a a typical someone in the first world country eats. So, you know, the diversity is there with plants. And I know
3: we're talking about veggies, but think of diversity of legumes and beans and grains and nuts and seeds and seeds and pick your fave and build from there. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, the thing about our bodies, they're
0: forgiving. They're very forgiving until they're not. We can proactively care for our bodies and fuel it with plants and exercise and do all the healthy things, or we cannot. And eventually our bodies will force us to pay attention and to take action and start being better to our bodies or pay the price. And I mean, we've seen again and again and again, even just on this podcast, like the price can be as severe as our life or it can be as severe as never being able to sit down and eat dinner comfortably with your friends again because you're always feeling uncomfortable. Like there's always a price that we get to eventually if we just keep piling on this junk you have a quote on your site that it says, symptoms are your body's way of speaking to you, and we will help you translate the language. And I love that because the number one job for us as humans is to pay attention to the symptoms. Only I can do that for my body. Nobody else can. Only you, listener, can do that for your body. So when you notice that something's off, your job is to notice it, stop, and seek help. So what resources do you both have for people that if they want to learn more and figure out how they can, you know, what they should do for their own bodies? And then are there any other resources out there that you recommend that people can look to if they're concerned about IBS?
2: Yeah. I mean, if you guys go to Maritoth.com, you'll see, I mean, we really built our practice on working one-on-one with people. So that's first and foremost, where we have a total of seven registered dietitians, all very, all very much integrative and gut focused and plant-based. And, plant-based. Mm-hmm. and so you can work with those dietitians and we see clients all over the world. Uh, on top of that, we have our e-guides where if you go to our website, you'll see a lot of e-guides with more on the way. And then our course. So we, we do have our hundred percent plant-based, a good gut SIBO IBS course uh, that, is, that is out probably when you're listening to this. And, um, and so with that course, you're getting, I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg of what Dahlia mentioned of all the histamines and foods and FODMAP. So we really tried to simplify that and make it easy where you're still going to put in the hard work, but at least now you have this course for a lifetime with resources where you can finally get a hold of that.
3: If somebody wants some recipes for ideas, if somebody wants to join our course, if somebody wants that one-on-one, we've really tried to understand where different people are coming from and offer resources of all different budgets and time commitments and involvements to anybody who's out there. I'm sure most of you have also heard of Dr. B, Dr. Will Bolsowitz He runs his Plant-Fed Gut Masterclass uh, once or twice a year, but we have been participating in that for the last three years. You can always look for us there with Dr. B's course. He's an incredible resource. But there's so many great resources who are out there, so many plant-based gastroenterologists, gut health dietitians, and I would say you really can't go wrong with following somebody who's staying up to date on the research, who really isn't trying to sell you anything, but really is just trying to improve your quality of life. And like you said, trying to help you translate those symptoms. Your body wants to heal. It loves you. You can't heal a body you don't love back. Um, So somebody who wants to help you translate that and wants to help you heal with each meal. Well, thank you
1: so, so, so much for coming on, sharing your knowledge, sharing your expertise in this. I feel like I know way, 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 way more about IBS now than I did before this. And I'm grateful for that because I I hear about it all the time and I will be sending people your way. Where can people find you? Where can people follow your videos on social media? Where can people check out your website and your courses?
2: Yeah, all on MarriedToHealth.com and MarriedToHealth on YouTube and Instagram and yeah, all all over. All platforms. All platforms, Married to health, So yeah, you plug in and like, like Dahlia said, we have kind of a, a something for everyone there, depending if you're just curious or you're in the action phase and want to take action. And ideally you're listening to your body, those symptoms when it's whispering or talking and not yelling. So yeah.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much again. We'll include all those links in the show notes and we appreciate everything that you do to help people feel better.
3: Thank you. Thank you you for helping people spread the word.
0: A quick reminder to check out our sponsors of this episode, Autumn Glory Apples, which you can learn more about at com, And you can get 30% off your first month of Seeds Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash plant powered.
1: A big thank you to Dahlia and James for coming on the podcast and sharing so much knowledge. I have really appreciated learning so much about gut health over the last couple seasons of our podcast. And this is no exception. I personally know so many people who suffer from discomfort and cannot wait to pass this episode along to them. I think you're getting
0: some great credibility for when you launch your poop podcast, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> My I don't cast. know if have talked about that before, but how you and Chris talk about starting the poop cast. I'm still waiting for it to come to life. Yes. yes. So much so. All right. Well, if you know anyone who struggles with IBS, we hope that this will be a helpful resource that you can share with them. As always, you can find the show notes and more over on our podcast website, which is plantpoweredpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to our e-newsletter there. And if you'd like to support this show, it would mean the world to us. We do have a Patreon where you can support the show with just a couple dollars a month. And you can find that at patreon.com slash plant powered people. We wish you all a happy gut, happy pooping, (laughs) comfortable bodies, lots of wellness, lots of plants, lots of fiber, all the good stuff. And we will talk to you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.